could come take your seats. that I feel like we're a little bit in the chapel because of what we're to hear this afternoon. Um, I'm mostly here to introduce the introducer, uh, but I must say a couple of words. Rafael Campo and I have been um, toiling in the same vineyard for a long, long time. Rafael Campo is an internist. He's at the BI Deaconess in Boston. He is now the director of the new Center for Humanities and Medicine at Harvard. Uh, this is a major accomplishment. Uh, I grew up at Harvard, so I know what both places are like. And the difference is that um, Boston medicine is more elegant than New York medicine. It's also more elitist. And so, Rafael Campo, as an internist, caring mostly for AIDS patients, a Latino, uh, writing in his own writing about his experience as a Latino gay physician, caring for AIDS patients, has, through his poetry, engaged in the elegance of Boston medicine, and has come up against the elitist ceiling of Boston medicine on all those other counts. So what you're to hear is indeed a voice of elegance and of struggle. Now, this is the fun part. So I've been at this long enough that I have a really good Rolodex. And I get to use my Rolodex. You know what a Rolodex is? <laughs> You might call it your Outlook contacts. <laughs> and so, what I get to do is share the riches with people in my Rolodex. So when I, when I had, when I worked with and continue to work with a graduate student called Samantha Barrow in my master's program, who is uh, a poet, a performer, uh, working within the fractious elements of healthcare. Uh, and she came to me saying, oh, I've been reading Rafael Campo. And I, give I said, you want to meet him? She says, what? I said, maybe he needs some help over the summer. She says, what? And so we kind of made that happen. And Rafael has been the beneficiary of the dividend of Sam. And Sam's now going to introduce Rafael. <laughs> say this is an honor to be asked by Rita Sharon, Dr. Rita Sharon, and the narrative medicine community to introduce Dr. Raphael Campo is a ridiculous understatement. I am a skinny wire between two ginormous generators this mic is passing between. I trust 
You'll forgive me if I'm a little jumpy. Sometimes in conversation, Dr. Campo, Raphael, closes his eyes, makes little murmurs, and rocks back and forth ever so in his chair. I like to think that it is to close down the sometimes dominant visual sense and let the music of communication, riddled with language and color, bloom not only in his skull, but through all of his bones. I went to hear Raphael share poems years ago at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, also home to the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. He told the story of his arrival at Harvard Medical School and the things that worried him. I don't know if you remember this, but before telling the story, let me first remind you in true narrative medicine fashion that what you are witnessing is my construction of this event. And while it is likely that it holds some truth with a little t, it should not be mistaken for accurate with a capital A. Anyway, when he first arrived at Harvard, with his parents, he was nervous about meeting his new classmates and faculty for several reasons. He's Cuban-American, raised Catholic, and gay. But none of that bothered anyone. All of these aspects of his identity flowed seamlessly into his promising work. What did disturb them, however, was when he came out as a poet. This story has struck me for years. What is it that's so threatening about the gaze or act of poetry that had some fellows clutching their stethoscopes? Do metaphors obscure objectivity? Does the sensual or philosophical intimacy necessitated by poetry disturb the professional distance? If the heart beats like a drum, can you not still cut into it? In Raphael's words from his book, The Healing Art, he references this perceived disconnect. In poetry, the instinctual and the emotional coexist on par with the intellectual and the rational. Poetry disallows the separation of these realms, which are so often and so wrongly considered to be at odds with one another. I've also heard it said that poetry is not the language of either or, but rather of yes and. I imagine it is this concept of, delicate, of elegant ambiguity that posed a threat to his collegiate peers and to the technological hubris of contemporary practice, to borrow some more of his words. Instead of arrogance or assumption, Raphael is drenched in empathy, as it is currently referred to in the medical literature along with his technical prowess and medical agility. Every move, every gesture, from Raphael's stance as a doctor, thinker, poet, teacher, writer, humanist, healer, embodies this humility, this approach that continues to welcome ever-awakening possibility. Dare I say he loves? as an integral part of his clinical practice? But how can one stay so open in the face of illness, of bodies affected by violence, both structural and personal, of suffering, 
All this taking place in the ever-constricting web of our financial health care crisis that consistently ties the hands we trust to heal. There are no final static answers to these questions, only relational ones, only the processes Raphael has been so diligent and generous in sharing. The books tracing the tracks of his work are many. Five poetry collections, including Diva, Enemy, and What the Body Told, which have earned him Pushcarts, Lambdas, and Guggenheims. Two collections of essays of poems, the of essays and poems, The Desire to Heal, A Doctor's Education in Empathy, Identity, and Poetry, and The Healing Art, A Doctor's Black Bag of Poetry, and many, many academically rigorous and eloquent articles published through the medical journals and literature that urge the principles he will illustrate tonight as soon as I shut up and get out of the way. But first, I need to emphasize that if things have shifted just a bit to make room for little pockets of humanistic medical education and care that embrace poems and the arts, it is in fact part due to Raphael. I also want to share that last week I had the pleasure of working with one of his poems that he will end with tonight called What I Would Give and the resonances of, of all of the beautifully centered work and insights that came because of his poems are still ringing with me. So it is with great buzz that I introduce you to Dr. Raphael Campo, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical, Director of both the Office of Multicultural Affairs and the Catherine Swan Ginsburg Humanism and Medicine Program at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, among many other things. I suggest you take some time during his poems to close your eyes. just an incredible introduction saying thank you. Totally undeserved and uh, I think I probably should just get back on the plane to Boston now and let you just uh, uh, savor Sam's words. My goodness, that was just incredibly kind. Thank you, Sam. I am really absolutely honored and thrilled to be here at the place where I feel narrative medicine has really become such a force in our culture in our profession and uh, to, to read to you and particularly to have my hero in the audience, Rita Sharon, is just, uh, it's just it's thrilling for me. So, uh, so I thank you for that opportunity and I thank you all for coming to hear me uh, this afternoon. And what a gorgeous setting, my goodness. I wish I could take this whole room back to, to Harvard with me. So. Uh, well, since I'm in New York, I thought I would start with a poem that... Uh, for me in some ways is a beginning point for a reflection or a kind of performance, if you will, on the relationship between poetry and healing. And I often start with this poem, but I thought it'd be particularly uh, useful in a way to, to share it with you here in New York, um, because it has to do with the events of 9-11. And I'm sure like many of you, uh, you remember very clearly where you were that morning. I, I was uh, in my own clinic seeing my patients that morning. And I remember thinking how 
the act of narrative was, was so important to my patients as they were trying to make sense of what they were seeing out on those TV screens in the waiting room and, and how, you know, the kinds of tools that I had in my medical uh, armamentarium just seemed insufficient. And what we really needed to be doing together was sh sharing in language and being present together at a moment that was just utterly, in some ways, unspeakable, and yet demanded narration, demanded uh, to be made sense of uh, through, through language. And I'll, I'll never forget those patients of mine uh, coming in, uh, many of whom are very, very ill, chronically ill, and, and, and wanting yet to repair somehow this wound together of what was happening to all of us. Uh, so, so I felt that one way I could respond was to write a poem of my own. Uh, and so this is a poem called The Enemy, which I hope will be again a kind of an entree into thinking about how poetry and, and healing might be related. Uh, so a poem, The Enemy. The building's wounds are what I can't forget. Though nothing could absorb my sense of loss, I stared into their blackness, what was not supposed to be there, billowing of soot and ragged maw of splintered steel, glass. The building's wounds are what I can't forget, the people dropping past them, fleeting spots approaching death as if concerned with grace. I stared into the blackness, what was not inhuman, since by men's hands they were wrought. Reflected on the TV screen, my face upon the building's wounds. I can't forget this rage. I don't know what to do with it. It's in my nightmares, towers, plumes of dust, a staring in the blackness. What was not conceivable is now our every thought. We fear the enemy is all of us. The building's wounds are what I can't forget. I stared into their blackness, what was not. Uh, Sam told a little bit of that story of mine that uh, I often share uh, about when I first arrived at Harvard Medical School and having these various identities as a, as a person of faith and uh, Latino and not having many role models uh, uh, in those uh, regards to inspire me to a career in medicine and then of course being gay and having experienced homophobia in doctor's offices from a young age, how I was really apprehensive about that and then of course coming out as a poet was really the, the, the real frightening thing about, uh, about me as it turned out. It, all my colleagues were just really very troubled that uh, someone who cared about poetry should go to medical school. And, um, and I think you know, the irony of that uh, story is, is relevant to what I wanna share with you today because I cannot imagine the work that I do without the presence of poetry in my life and the way in which being a poet, living a life as a poet, as a public writer uh, uh, brings to that to that experience, and, and it's just, uh, to my mind, inextricably interrelated with, with the work of healing. And, um, 
And so I wanted to share next another poem that perhaps locates me in relation to some of these different identities because I think one of the ways in which poetry heals perhaps is in the way it joins us in community and across communities. It's a gesture of language, it's a gesture of connection through language and the way it works in us, the rhythms it captures that reflect our inner bodily rhythms, the way in which it speaks to us through uh, cultural references and, and touchstones in our, in our lives, in our shared histories, I think really uh, is part of its healing power. So, so this is a poem that, again, perhaps uh, is a way of locating me in relation to what might seem very disparate identities, but yet, uh, to my mind, are, are very much synthesized in, in one, one life that is a life that is part of a larger community and culture. So, uh, so this is a poem called Arriving, and you'll see one of my favorite places in the world in this poem, uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts, where I try to uh, visit and, and work and create art as often as I, as I can. I wish I could be there all the time, but uh, so it's also about a healing place. Um, so the poem is called Arriving. We're newcomers to an old place. The house was built in 1860, so we think. Since then, the Portuguese fishermen and the faded artsy bohemians have come and started now to go, replaced by guppies driving Lexuses. Our street is lined with lindens, home to chickadees that play in the elaborate display of whirligigs, bird baths, wind chimes, and what's got to be the world's most complex bird feeder, constructed by the man who lived next door year round, until at 88, he died of what the rumors say was just pneumonia. Being doctors, we are privy to much more than other weekenders with second homes. We know about the prostate three doors down, Across the street, it's diabetic feet and cataracts. Some friends who've seen our place have asked us when another like it might become available. We sipped our drinks beneath a twilight sky, approving of the light, the certain quality it has that no one could articulate. Ice clinked as if in harmony with the cascade of notes from those wind chimes next door. I knew the realtors had been there yesterday. Another neighbor down the street has AIDS, as if to prove us not so different. They told me I could live with it, he'd said, for 20 years, and now I get lymphoma, while well-fed birds bounce from above like balls belonging to the gods' unruly children. Arriving here, perhaps like us, he thought he might escape. Perhaps he sought the light the artists and the Portuguese came here to venerate in each their human way. Expatriates like them, I want to say. A painting we admired on a cold day, off-season, on Commercial Street. Two men working nets in a small boat, churning seed, the light between them captured perfectly, belonging, it would seem, to everyone. We left the gallery and headed home. Now that I'm uh, back at Harvard on the faculty, one of my roles is to think about the ways in which literary writing and poetry in particular might be uh, useful as a way of modeling 
more empathetic relationships between care providers uh, and patients, particularly our medical students and residents. And I take that role very seriously because when I reflect back on my own uh, medical training, I remember having a number of experiences that uh, seemed aimed at persuading me the, that, that narrative that poetry wasn't really uh, relevant to the work of healing. And I remember one uh, attending I had in particular who uh, used to tell me that I identified too strongly with my patients and that was going to be a real barrier uh, to my becoming an effective physician someday and that, um, that I had to really toughen up or maybe consider getting out of medicine. Um, so I thought that feedback at the time was really very, very damaging um, because I was actually really struggling with how could I be a more effective witness to the suffering of my patients? How could I really be present for them? And I felt so many barriers to that, um, whether it was the machines that actually physically interpose themselves between me and my patients or, or whether it was really the, the, the culture of medicine itself that so, so feared, so disallowed uh, those kinds of uh, human connections. So, um, so, so I do take this role very seriously and uh, a thing that I hear now from my colleagues uh, who are on the faculty uh, is a, a different kind of critique of this work. They say, well, you know, you can't really teach things like empathy and compassion and those kinds of things that you talk about in your poetry. So, so you know, it really doesn't have a place in the curriculum. You know, we need to, you know, either the students, the learners, they either have it inside them or they don't and, you know, we can't teach it. Um, and I really take issue with that as well because I, whether we can teach it is an interesting discussion we can have perhaps when I finish, but I do think at the very least we can model it more effectively and we can perhaps uh, try to show what the definition of empathy is in our own relationships with our patients and how we treat our patients and our colleagues and learners. So, um, so this, this is a poem that to my mind is about empathy. I don't know if I can define it, uh, for you strictly. Um, sometimes I resist it when people talk about empathy. It can be kind of a glib uh, uh, sort of uh, topic, I suppose. But, but uh, this poem is perhaps an attempt to really enact it or perform it or to give a kind of definition of it, which I think speaks to the utility of poetry medical education, perhaps. So, so this is a poem called Iatrogenic. I probably don't have to define Iatrogenic for this audience. Um, uh, and to my mind, again, perhaps it's a kind of uh, definition of, of this elusive empathy. Iatrogenic. You say, I do this to myself. Outside, my other patients wait. Maybe snow falls. We're all just waiting for our deaths to come. We're all just hoping it won't hurt too much. You say, it makes it seem less lonely here. I study them as if the deep red cuts were only wounds, as if they didn't hurt so much. The way you hold your upturned arms, the cuts seem aimed at your unshaven face. Outside, my other patients wait their turns. I run gloved fingertips along their course, as if I could touch pain itself as if by touching pain, I might alleviate my own despair. You say, it's snowing, Doc. The snow, instead of howling, soundlessly comes down. I think you think it's beautiful. I say, 
This isn't all about the snow, is it? The way you hold your upturned arms, I think about embracing you, but don't. I think we do this to ourselves. I think the falling snow explains itself to us, silent, beautiful, and so deeply wounding. Another reason I'm convinced of the utility of narrative, perhaps even the necessity of narrative, of poetry, of, of language, and the work of healing, is because I've seen actually so many of my writer friends make such productive use of their own creative writing uh, in responding to experiences of illness that they've had. And one such writer who always comes immediately to mind is Eve Sedgwick, who uh, was a mentor of mine. and. Uh, uh, was just a tremendous poet. Most people, I think, know her for her critical uh, work, but she was also a very, very uh, gifted and, and just tremendous poet. And um, she lived for about 16 years after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and she often spoke to me about how her writing, uh, whether it be critical writing or, or her, her uh, engagement with poetry, how that really felt to her as a, a kind of sustenance, that it really kept her alive in a very real sense. And uh, so I always try to remember those kinds of anecdotes when I'm you know, faced with all the crushing biomedical data and statistics, and you know, that those anecdotes, those stories actually matter, and that they, they tell a truth about the utility of this kind of work, or the necessity of this kind of work. Um, and so I'd like to remember that also by reading this poem for Eve, uh, which is called Heart Grow Fonder. The leg bone's connected to the shin bone. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. A little voice inside me said, beware. A tumor big as a grapefruit killed her. Tamoxifen, oxycodone, Bengay. The breastbone's connected to the rib bone. Like a patient etherized, I can't say what evening looks like, but I feel alone. A little voice inside me said, unfair. My brain's a sieve, she'd say. We mourned her hair. She'd get lost on the way to San Jose. The rib bones connected to the backbone. I left my heart in San Francisco Bay, a scar across her chest. One breast was gone. A little voice inside me said, I'm scared. Some final pleasures, slices of ripe pear, massages strangely not unlike foreplay, the backbones connected to the neck bone, old voicemails from her that I still replay, physician heal thyself, sweetly in tones, the little voice inside me I can't bear. We'd read together almost every day, after great pain, a formal feeling comes, the neck bones connected to the head bone. A little voice inside me says, beware. When I think about this connection between poetry and healing, I'm also rem reminded always of some of my patients, of course, and, um, and in particular how much I think our patients actually really take care of us in medicine. 
And um, this, one of the ways they do that, I think, is through the stories they tell us and the language they, they share with us. And uh, the patient you'll meet in this next brief poem is just an amazing example of that kind of care that I received from, from a patient. Uh, he was about five years old, and uh, someone I took care of actually on my pediatrics rotation during medical school. And um, I'll never forget him because I was you know, on call one night with my team, and uh, I was paged, and he needed an IV. And I went to the room you know, with my little pile of you know, equipment and my you know, needles and my, all my stuff and get it all set up on the bed there and you know, tried to get the IV into him and missed once, missed twice. Sweat starting to pour down my brow. The nurse is at the doorway, rolling her eyes, thinking this guy is incompetent. You know what the heck is going on? And this kid's looking up at me with these huge eyes, and I'm trying again and again. I'm just not getting the IV into him. And then finally, he, you know, he's looking up at me, and he says with these huge eyes, "Doctor, don't worry. You're doing a great job." <laughs> if that's not empathy, I don't know what what empathy is. But you know, here's this kid, five years old who was empathizing with my, uh, you know, distress, uh, trying to reassure me as I'm torturing him, trying to, you know, put this idea, it was just one of those moments that, uh, truly unforgettable, so, um, so perhaps poetry also has a role in our work to help us remember those moments which um, are absolutely precious and uh, are not only um, humbling, but, but also tremendously, uh, I think, inspiring and in uh, joining us to our, our patients. Um, so, so this is a poem for, for that kid, um, which is a very short poem, um, and I always read it in, in uh, remembering him. It's called Age Five, Born with AIDS. In Jaime's picture of the world, a heart as big as South America shines out, the center of the only ocean. Three stick figures, one is labeled me, are drawn beside the world as if such suffering could make us more objective. Jaime is bald and has no mouth. His parents aren't like him. They're all red lips and crazy yellow hair and grins. There is no title for his work of art except the names we give ourselves. That's a poem from my, actually my very first book, so um, from a time when uh, I think we had a different uh, kind of um, uh, awareness, if you will, about HIV and AIDS. And the changes have been so tremendous, at least in our country, that um, I, I thought I would share a story about, about it, actually. Uh, I was not too long ago giving a reading at Oberlin College uh, to commemorate World's AIDS, World AIDS Day. And um, after I shared some, uh, some poems and, and other work, uh, one of the students came up to me afterwards and said, well, you know, I think it's great that you've been writing about HIV and AIDS, but, but you know, don't you really feel like we're, we're kind of out of the AIDS crisis now? I mean, we really have a cure for AIDS, and, you know, I mean, what's, you know, is it really such a big deal anymore? And I was just sort of, uh, this is Oberlin College. I, I was just sort of, just taken t totally aback by that, you know, and tried to remind the student that, you know, well, yes, we've made some tremendous advances, but there are still 40 million people on this planet with HIV or AIDS, and most of them are going to die despite the kinds of 
treatments that we're very fortunate to have here in this country, not to mention all the kinds of challenges we face dealing with the side effects and complications of the, the treatments we do have. So that inspired me to write another poem. That's what I, I do a lot these days um, in response to these kinds of things. So this was a poem that came out of that and again perhaps uh, says that poetry can, can, can help us also in medicine by calling us to activism, calling us to respond to those kinds of misconceptions that are out there to help us uh, feel again that sense of emergency about the kinds of illnesses we, we treat every day in our office that may seem in some ways like routine, another routine case of HIV on antiretrovirals, check the viral load, check the CD4 cell count, see you in three months. Um, you know, to really again uh, challenge those kinds of um, uh, uh, complacencies, if you will. So uh, this is a poem called Recent Past Events. It wasn't so miraculous back then some said we had their blood on our prim hands. We were ashamed of our good appetites. We marched together in gay pride parades. We feared their blood. We prayed for it to end. We learned the names of lands in Africa, Botswana, Ghana, Tanzania, Chad. We adopted universal precautions. We prayed for it to end. We feared their blood. We were afraid to call our parents who we knew would think the worst. We learned to speak in acronyms. We watched two women kiss on television late one night. We cried. We handed out free condoms in the fens. Remember when it seemed miraculous that most of our close friends weren't dead? We feared their blood. We were ashamed. We went on trips to Africa. We saw a leopard kill an antelope. We saw the vast red dunes Namibia is famous for. We cried at patients' funerals. We handed out clean needles in the fens. We feared their blood. We touched each other carefully at night, remembered when it felt miraculous. Remember when your cheekbones didn't jut so much? We had their blood on our clean hands. We were ashamed of living while they died. We cooked for friends. We prayed for it to end. We traveled to Peru, New Zealand, France. We bungee jumped from cliffs. We sipped red wine. We shopped for clothes that fit us well. We watched the president announce more funds. We cried. We were ashamed of our good appetites. We watched two women kiss outside the door of our favorite Chinese restaurant. We talked about adopting kids. We feared what people thought of us. We bought a house. We painted the back bedroom red like blood. We gave less money to the charities. We found a nice church that accepted us. The stained glass windows seemed miraculous. We ate our dinner. We remembered how we feared their blood and how we prayed for it to end and how it never really did. Um, I wanted to read something about my pre-med uh, days, if you will indulge me a little bit. I know those envelopes are going out to 
aspiring college students around the country, and I was thinking about, I was actually empathizing with them and remembering my own anxiety about that. Um, and I thought maybe it would be appropriate to read something about the, that pre-med time in my life, a, a happier time in some ways, uh, when I was at Amherst College. And uh, I remember actually going to look at colleges with my family, and uh, of course my little brothers came along and piled into the family Buick and drove around New England. And some of this may sound familiar to some of you. Um, and uh, we got to Amherst, and of course I fell in love with Amherst. And if any of you know Amherst College, it's a, it's a very small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts. God knows why I was <laughs> attracted to it. Actually, I, could, I wrote a whole essay about it, so if you want to read about it, you can. <laughs> you can. But, um, but of course my brothers uh, you know, were eager to uh, tease me about my interest in what was called the Ferris College. And uh, if anyone knows Amherst, you know, you know that Amherst uh, could call itself the Ferris College. So my brothers, uh, to get at me, immediately renamed it the Fairiest College. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because I think they really knew something about me at that time in my life that I wasn't quite ready to admit myself. So, so this, the, this is an essay called The Fairiest College. And um, I, again, I thought it was appropriate to read today because it gives a little bit of a glimpse, perhaps, of of um, that time in my life when uh, I didn't have to perhaps uh, defend uh, a notion of empathy in, in life every day. Uh, so the fairiest college, this is just a short excerpt from that essay. I finally left the confines of suburbia and after the now familiar four hour car ride, I arrived at Amherst, but this time I was one of her own. I was already becoming someone else, a different person, the sun seemed a bit less out of reach. At the freshman orientation barbecue, my parents hovered over my shoulder, eagerly pointing out details in the scenery and in the architecture, or solicitously offering to get me more of the watered-down pink lemonade, all the time avoiding what was the inevitable goodbye. Huge fists of smoke from the grilling states curled and rose in the air, dramatically giving shape to the growing resentment that began to boil in my blood. I was too indignant about my own efforts at coolness being spoiled to acknowledge either the strain in my father's voice whenever he asked me a question or the film of tears in my mother's eyes when she studied the cornice at the top of a pillar. My father had assigned himself the special responsibility of spotting potential friends for me in the crowd, which I found especially irritating because his criteria apparently were, one, that they be male, two, that they have short hair, and most important, three, that they have a Spanish-sounding surname. This third criterion required him to approach each prospective candidate quite closely while staring at his chest as he tried to make out the lettering on scrawled name tags. Pathetic, I thought. Even as he had spurred me on to reach so high an echelon in American culture, still he searched for traces of his own lost culture, one I was glad to be rid of, that somehow might root me. After about 20 minutes of this behavior, I told him plainly that he was embarrassing me and pleaded with him to stop. I desperately wanted to blend in. I was actually working at being nondescript. Just then he shouted, squinting, look over there, Jorge Arroyo, enunciating the name clearly, rolling his R's beautifully, almost seductively. Now he looks like a nice guy. Why don't you go introduce yourself to him and find out whether he's in any of your pre-med classes? That was when I glimpsed the name tag myself, pinned to a colorful shirt. As he walked by, his face turned towards an attractive woman who clung to his elbow. My father lunged to grab his shirt sleeve. I winced, 
yet he had not heard my father call out his name, and my father missed him by more than a few inches. When I had collected myself enough to speak, my voice was quietly and coolly irate. I stated that I would not select my friends solely on the basis of their ethnicity or their pre-professional choices, that I wanted to form friendships on the basis of shared interests and not presuppositions, and that I would make a point of not meeting this Jorge Arroyo, and for that matter, any other Latinos or pre-meds, precisely because he wanted me to do so. Looking utterly crestfallen, my father trailed off to get us more lemonade, drained of all his vicarious excitement, not knowing that years later he would be telling this same story gleefully, almost triumphantly, taking the credit even for first identifying the man with whom I've spent most of my adult life. <laughs> That's a true story. If my dad were here, he would be sitting right there in the front row, and he would get up and say, no, 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 that's not how it happened, and this is como, como lo, lo decimos todo así. You know, he'd get into the mix here, so thankfully, he's in California. So you got my version of the story, which is true. That's the true, actual story. Capital A, actual. Um, Whenever I read these next poems, uh, someone comes up afterwards and says, oh, those poems you read towards the end, they really remind me of that. Well, they used to say, they really remind me of that television show ER. Now they say, they really remind me of that television show House. And um, then, of course, they ask, do you watch ER? Do you watch House? And then I have to kind of sheepishly admit that I do watch those shows, which is all the more pathetic and embarrassing since uh, I spend a lot of my time dealing with situations that in reality are completely not what is like what's depicted on those shows. And, and um, I'm telling you all this because really these poems were written in an entirely different uh, uh, kind of uh, gesture, I think. And um, they were written well before any of these shows appeared uh, on, on air. And I was really trying in these poems, I think, to, to really elevate some of the narratives of uh, people who are silenced in our culture, and in medicine in particular. And um, you know, those shows seem to really glamorize the life of the doctors, and the patients are really there only to have their appendixes removed in the emergency room, which never really happens. And, and you know, to have a, you know, kind of a backdrop against which the doctors can work out all of their neuroses. And it's so unrealistic. And, and, and I really wanted, again, to give a sense of you know, the, 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 how central the stories of our patients really are in the work of of healing and, and that it's, it's not about us, it's actually about our patients. It's about uh, their dignity and their the beauty really in some senses of their suffering and not to um, you know, either sugarcoat it or, or prettify it but to, but to present it in its, in its truth in a sense. And I often talk to my medical students about the distinction between fact and truth and they're all focused on the facts and how many centimeters was the lymph node and how many, you know, what the potassium level is, and, and uh, they're, they're not as uh, attuned to this notion of, of truths, uh, I think, that come out of really our patients' um, descriptions of their experiences uh, with illness. So, so this is um, a series of poems called Ten Patients and Another, and um, again, I hope they, uh, they represent a little bit of, of the kind of truth and dignity of, of patients I've, I've had the privilege to care for, um, or some of those patients. Uh, so 10 patients and another. Mrs. G, 
The patient is a 60-odd-year-old white female who presents with fever, cough, and shaking chills. No further history could be elicited. She doesn't speak. The patient's social history was non-contributory. Someone left her here. The intern on the case heard crackles in both lungs. An EKG was done, which showed a heart was beating in the normal sinus rhythm, except for an occasional dropped beat. An intravenous line was placed. The intern found a bruise behind her ear. She then became quite agitated and began to sob without producing tears. We think she's dry. She's resting quietly on Haldol, waiting for her bed upstairs. Jamal. The patient is a three-year-old black male, the full-term product of a pregnancy that was, according to his grandmother, unplanned and may be complicated by prenatal alcohol exposure. Did okay, developmentally delayed but normal weights and heights, until last week when he ingested what's turned out to be cocaine, according to the lab results. His grandmother had said she'd seen him with some baby powder on his face and hands before he started seizing and they brought him in. The vital signs have stabilized. The nurse is getting DSS involved. The mom? She left it on the kitchen table. That's her the one who sings to him all night. Kelly. The patient is a 12-year-old white female. She's gravita zero, no STDs. She'd never even had a pelvic. One month nausea and vomiting. No change in bowel habits. No fever, chills, malaise. Her school performance has been worsening. She states that things at home are fine. On physical exam, she cried but was cooperative. Her abdomen was soft, with normal bowel sounds and question of a suprapubic mass, which was non-tender. Her pelvic was remarkable for scars at six o'clock, no hymen visible, some uterine enlargement. Pregnancy tests positive times two. She says it was her dad. He's sitting in the waiting room. SW. Extended from her left ear down her jaw, the lack was seven centimeters long. She told me that she slipped and struck her face against the kitchen floor. The floor was wet because she had been mopping it. I guess she'd had to wait for many hours since the clock read nearly midnight. Who mops floors so late? Her little girl kept screaming in her husband's thick, impatient arms. He knocked three times, each time to ask when we'd be done. I infiltrated first with lidocaine. She barely winced and didn't start to cry until the 16th stitch went in and we were almost through. I thought my handiwork was admirable. I yawned, then offered her instructions on the care of wounds. She left. Manuel. In trauma one, a gay Latino kid, 
I think he's 17, is getting tube for respiratory failure. Sleeping pills and Tylenol I translated for him as he was wheeled in. His novio explained that when he told his folks about it all, they threw him out like trash. They lived together underneath the overpass of Highway 101 for seven weeks, the stars obstructed from their view. For cash, they sucked off older men in Cadillacs. A viejita from the neighborhood brought tacos to them secretly. Last night, with 18 wheelers roaring overhead, he whispered that he'd lost the will to live. He pawned his crucifix to get the pills. FP, another AIDS admission. This one's great. They bring him in strapped down because he threw his own infected shit at them. You better bring your goggles and a mask. We think he's got TB. He's pissed as hell. Apparently he wants to die at home, but somebody keeps calling 911. A relative back home in Iowa or some damn place. Just keep him snowed with Ativan. Believe you me, you do not want to get to know this fucker. Capacies all over, stinks like shit. Incontinent, of course. How long before you get down here? Because his nurse is driving me insane. Of course we got blood cultures. Yeah, a gas. Okay, I'll stick him one more time. The things you do for love. Jane Doe number two. They found her unresponsive in the street, beneath a lamplight I imagined made her seem angelic, regal even, clean. She must have been around 16. She died who knows how many hours earlier that day, the heroine inside her like a vengeful dream about to be fulfilled. Her hands were crossed about her chest as though raised up in self-defense. I tried to pry them open to confirm the absence of her heartbeat, but in death she was so strong, as resolute as she was beautiful. I traced the track marks on her arms instead, then pressed my thumb against her bloodless lips, so urgent was my need to know. I felt the quiet left by a departing soul. I have been so inspired by Dr. Sharon's work here and the work that a lot of you are doing here that I've tried to uh, emulate it uh, at my home institution. And one of the things I've been trying to do with some of my uh, interns and residents is some reflective writing exercises. And uh, they come to my house once a month and I bake cookies for them and we have a fire during the winter and uh, they write poems and short narratives and we talk about them together and um, I sometimes give them assignments and uh, one of the assignments I gave them not too long ago was to think about their white coats and the symbolism of the white coat and what the white coat meant and and uh, trying to be a good teacher I did the assignment myself um, and uh, actually came up with this poem and I thought I would share it with you it's uh, still a fairly new poem but the ones they wrote were much better, but um, I thought I would share mine with you. 
since I can't bring all of theirs with me today. But um, so this is a, a poem for my my students and residents. It's called "Without My White Coat," um, and then I'll wrap up after this. Without my white coat. I'm not a real doc without my white coat. I could be anyone, this sullen girl, the homeless person crying to himself, that addict who thinks he's got HIV. I could be anyone, this sullen girl who studies the ink stain on my white coat, that addict who thinks he gave HIV to his boyfriend who sits in my waiting room. He studies the ink stain on my white coat. I wonder if he feels dirty, too. His boyfriend, who sits in my waiting room, looked up at me, hopefully. I regret my wondering. I feel dirty, too, a brown-skinned imposter in my white coat. Look up, I say unhopefully, regret the burning light I shine in his dark eyes. A brown-skinned imposter in a white coat, I'm half surprised he follows my commands. The burning light I shine in his dark eyes constricts his pupils. When his tears well up, I'm not surprised. He follows the commands of human need. My white coat keeps me clean and strict before my pupil. His tears well up as carefully I draw his speechless blood. Of human need, my white coat keeps me clean, revealing very little of myself. Carefully, speechlessly, I draw his blood, a picture of the unseen soul, perhaps. Revealing very little of myself, my white coat holds my shape, stands for something, a picture of the unseen soul, perhaps. Perhaps it is the ghost of who I was. My white coat holds my shape, stands for something universal, love, healing, peace. I am, perhaps, a ghost of something that once was. I wish I could be better than I am. Universal love, healing peace. I am the homeless person crying to himself, wishing I could be better than I am. I'm not a real doc without my white coat. I'm going to close with one short uh, excerpt from another essay that perhaps um, says more explicitly uh, some of what I feel this connection is between uh, healing and poetry. And uh, this is from an essay called AIDS and the Poetry of Healing, and then I'll read one last poem, very short, and then I hope we have time for your questions and comments um, and some discussion about this. So uh, from an essay called AIDS and the Poetry of Healing. In poetry are present the fundamental beating contents of the body at peace. The regularity of resting brainwave activity in contrast to the disorganized spiking of a seizure. The gentle ebb and flow of breathing or sobbing in contrast to the harsh spasmodic cough. The single-voiced ringing chant of a slogan at an ACT-UP rally in contrast to the indecipherable rumblings of AIDS funding debate on the Senate floor. The poem is a physical process, is bodily exercise. Rhymes become the mental resting places in the ascending rhythmic stairway of memory. 
The poem, perhaps, is an idealization or a dream of the physical, the imagined healthy form. Yet it does not renounce illness. Rather, it reinterprets it as the beginning point for healing. I wonder, then, whether poetry might also be therapeutic. Many of my friends, especially some of my colleagues in medicine, have teased me for believing in the curative power of words, joking that I should write some doggerel on my prescriptions instead of the names of medications and directions for their use. If poetry is made of breath or the beating heart, then surely it's not unreasonable to think it might reach those places in the bodies of its audience, however rarefied. Moreover, I joke back, I have never seen a poem cause fulminant liver failure or bone marrow toxicity, even a really bad one. <laughs> Putting the mouth to words and by incantation returning regular rhythms to the working lungs, these were the principles by which ancient healers in Native American cultures practiced their art. The Egyptians gave their dead a book full of charms and spells to be used in the afterlife. Might not poetry then facilitate the passing to another realm? Poetry is a pulsing, organized imagining of what once was or is to be. What life once was, what life is to be. It is ampules of the purest, clearest drug of all, the essence and distillation of the process of living itself. I want to thank you all again for coming to hear me this afternoon. I want to especially thank Sam for her incredibly kind introduction and uh, Dr. Sean for her incredible leadership in this field and for inspiring so many of us to continue in this work despite many, many obstacles that we all face um, to try to bring humanism again uh, to the center of the work that we do in healing and caring for our patients. Uh, so thank you. And uh, one last poem. I told Sam I would read this, and then I really want to hear your questions. This is another poem about empathy, and I, will, I always feel at the end of these readings that, you know, I hope my work hasn't come across as a downer. I want to, you know, sometimes people have said that, gosh, your work is so depressing. But I really hope that in some of the sadness, there's also joy and, and a sense of hope as well. And I hope this poem conveys some of that. It's called What I Would Give, and Sam wanted me to read it, so I'll, I'll conclude with it. What I would give. What I would like to give them for a change is not the usual prescription with its hubris of the power to restore, to cure. What I would like to give them, ill from not enough of laying in the sun, not caring what the onlookers might think while feeding some bananas to their dogs. What I would like to offer them is this, not reassurance that their lungs sound fine or that the mole they've noticed change is not a melanoma but instead of fear transfigured by some doctorly advice, I'd like to give them my astonishment at sudden rainfall like the whole world weeping and how ridiculously gently it slicked down my hair. I'd like to give them that or the joy I felt while staring in your eyes as you learned epidemiology, the science of disease and populations, the night around our bed like timelessness like comfort, like what I would give to them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I
I do hope we have some time for questions. I, I don't quite go too over. Oh, good. Questions, comments, poems. Yes. a heartening comment and I think you know maybe because of work that Rita's doing and others that you know is breaking open the medical record in a sense and allowing voices from our patients to be present in the record I mean it's their record they own it and it's been kind of anathema to think that we might actually have the patient's voice recorded in that record and Rita's work has really challenged that kind of sense of only a particular kind of narrative belongs here. And um, so that's wonderful to hear you felt that way. And I would encourage you to, to write that poem. You're, you, you have the, uh, the agency and the, the authority to do it. And hopefully our patients will have that uh, power uh, as well someday. And, and they are in some places, which is really exciting. So it's a great and question. It'll happen soon that we can bypass the record somehow. Mm. And give our thoughts That's a wonderful comment, yes, thank you, yes. Uh, other questions? Um, I'm a little bit outside the community because I'm a psychologist and my study is actually caregivers for chronically ill families. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and what I've been doing for the past decade or so are narrative analyses of people who participate in online um, support groups. Oh, wow, great. So one of the things that really <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not a poem. Like you. Yes. They can't come out. They can't, they yeah, can't come out. That's right. There is, a, there is a kind of coming out, and there's this, there seems to be this idea that, number one, it can't be poetry because it's not my direct experience. Mm. It seems to be about mm. my loved one who is wrestling with these issues, and therefore I don't have the right. Mm, interesting. And the poetry that does get published in, in the online journals and in so much interesting family caregiving now for obvious reasons mm -hmm. is either very happy or very sad. And that's, I was really glad that you said about feeling like a downer. People are not, caregivers are not allowed to write in terms of ambiguity. Mm. It's either greatly mm. inspirational, let's walk down the path together. Mm. So what, I, what I'm wondering, since you're dealing with medical students who I am guessing must in some way wrestle, Mm -hmm. 
It's a great question. I think one way, very simply, is to provide the opportunity, just giving them the space within the discourse of what they're learning biomedically to say that this other way of knowing about illness is actually equally valid and is equally useful. And we care as a faculty, as your teachers, as uh, guides to along this path of, of uh, becoming a physician, we care about that way of knowing about illness also and we value it. And I've found that just providing that space has been transformative. And the students, what they, what they will produce is just astonishing. It's mind-blowing. And it, I think, speaks to how much they are engaged with these kinds of narratives at levels where uh, they aren't uh, perhaps able to uh, share them in the more explicit biomedical you know, kind of arena where they're on the wards. And, and in fact, uh, some of these things are really, I think, uh, useful teaching tools. There are now some anthologies that have come out of medical student uh, writing that I've actually used uh, to uh, as sort of jumping off points for some of the work I'm doing with my own students mm -hmm. now. And um, So I think one very simple way is to just provide the space. I'm sure Rita has some mm -hmm. thoughts about it too and all the work you've been doing here. I mean, how to really abet that and empower uh, students and learners to, to yeah. speak. Well, the only corollary is that um, the writer often doesn't realize similar experience with one of our uh, residents who's now actually going to be our chief resident who comes to our writing groups. You know, it's, right now it's an elective aspect of the curriculum and um, he's been coming faithfully to the and when he learned he was going to be chief he suddenly stopped coming to the because he felt that doing this was in some tension with you know this new role as so I have to be a I'm a chief resident I'm a, I have this new sort of again, sort of biomedically defined uh, kind of uh, uh, privileged role and that somehow the writing was in conflict with that or, or maybe might, he might not be taken as seriously in that authority role if he continued to, to participate in this. So I talked to him about it and it was very interesting. There is a bit of that kind of resistance to be viewed as a poet or as a writer or as a humanist that that's somehow soft, less less rigorous, and you know, it's astonishing to me that that kind of stereotype really exists within medicine. Because anyone who's been through a PhD program in English knows that's a hell of a lot in medical school. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so it's this weird kind of twisting of you know what's rigorous and what's what's what we value and how we how we define what we value uh, in, as, again, very biomedically determined and, and, and that, again, you know, there's this sort of privilege and, and sort of sense of 
the only valuable uh, currency in, in biomedical discourse is that which we generate through the testing we do and the, you know, the scientific analysis of cases rather than thinking about our patients as storytellers and, and again what I think of sometimes in that you know that sort of in some ways false binary of fact versus truth that you know we are concerned in medicine with just the facts I can't tell you how many times I had attendings when I would start and I was excited to get to the social history and, and so the you know the patient works as a nurse and she's been doing this for 25 years they'd be like could you keep the social history to like one or two sentences please you know we don't need to know about you know what her kids think about what she's going through and you know what she had for breakfast yesterday i mean we you know what are just the facts you know just the facts they don't want to know this the truth if you will of the of the narrative and so i mean i think in some ways that's a useful dichotomy to um to consider as we confront those kinds of you know reactions to this work so Can't deal with it. I mean, absolutely. In our hospital, we're getting now templatized notes, so they're like checking off boxes in the HPI, and the, so it's like because you know if you check up enough boxes, you get reimbursed in a certain way. I mean, it's like the language is now scripted even more so in more constraining ways. That you're absolutely right. I, I feel the same way. It's so frustrating because I don't feel like I, I have any sense from their notes or from their presentations who the people are that we're caring for. It's very troubling. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was just thinking of, of those box-checking notes now, which are, you know... I don't have a question or, or an answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but, it, but, but it's a raw experience because we finished last, what's the, yeah, less than a week ago, and there was a... There, you know, it's a, it's a tough time of year always. You can't quite see the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Everyone's tired, but... Yeah, um, they're getting... We had that feeling of, like, not really being able to connect about conveying... Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and that's another thing that's so ironic about this, don't you think, is that we actually end up doing a disservice to getting to that all-important, you know, correct diagnosis by eliminating the patient's voice. I think that it's really, you know, as the sort of old-timers, when I was a medical student, used to say, the patient, listen to the patient, they'll tell you what's wrong. They'll, they know what the diagnosis is. Just listen to the patient. We're so busy, you know, intruding with, they don't even get to in the first you know, three minutes of the interaction. We are immediately cutting them off and then we've got our ultrasound and then the, here comes the you know, phlebotomist and you know, they don't have a 
chance to get a word in edgewise anymore. And we just now, our notes are cut, cut and pasted on the computers and they're checked off, you know, templates that don't represent anything that the patient actually said or related. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that that does a disservice to best care, best diagnosis. Um, it, and, and, uh, and how many times students have missed because they haven't even examined the patient. You know, a major clinically relevant finding that they didn't even bother to, to look at the patient's back to see that there's a huge decubitus ulcer there. You know, they're just so focused on what the echo showed. I mean, and that's not to say that it's all their fault. I mean, I think we also, we abet this kind of behavior because of the kinds of ways in which we train them over many, many years, starting really at the pre-med you know, level where they're, you know, it's all multiple choice tests, increasingly, you know, jumping through these hoops and not really meaningful education around how to be a critical thinker, how to be, you know, those kinds of a liberal arts education now. I mean, parents at Amherst are up in arms that, you know, I don't want my student majoring in philosophy or in English. I mean, what are they going to do with an English degree? They need to, you know, I mean, it's, it's troubling. Our whole society is not just in medicine, too. Yeah. So, thank you for prompting my little diatribe. <laughs> <laughs> to get riled up about some of the depictions about, uh, of, of care providers and the depictions of the experience of illness that are circulating in our huh. culture that are so distorted and, and very troubling. Um, and there is also, honestly, a kind of, um, a, a kind of compulsive quality about it that it, it, those narratives are, and this also, I think, speaks just to the power of narrative that specious narratives, false narratives, can be in some ways even more gripping, more compelling. We have some of these circulating in our political discourse. You know, we have these patently false discourses and, 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 and uh, narratives that, that we eat up, that it's something in our nature that has to do, I think, with our, our, our attraction to narrative that, that pulls us into these pitfalls around narrative as well and I think that's part of it too that I'm just as susceptible even though I try to watch them critically and then I go back and I write my angry poem about it but but there's something really compelling about them and then and if we don't learn to think critically and to to contest some of those kinds of specious narratives we run the risk of being uh, persuaded by them and captivated by them and fantasizing them into a kind of a very scary reality that unfortunately I think is you know we see more and more in our culture these days um, that is expressed in so many ways politically and and uh, all the inequities in our society I mean there's so many ways in which that that uh, false narrative or those many false narratives you know um, uh, we want to believe them on some level so so it's a really interesting question. I'd love to hear what others think about that because it's 
we've run out of time, but uh, Raphael will be here. There are books to be had if you like. Raphael will sign. I would be delighted. Give a poet a chance to sign his book anytime. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Write a poem. <laughs>